Good morning. Good to be with you. I am Joel Wayne, uh, and I have the joy of being one of the pastors here. And I'm excited for today to be able to be with you and to talk with you. Um, yes, for those of you who have been here before, I am using a stool today because um, I've been told that when I stand up, I get kind of crazy. And so I'm trying, I'm going to try to have more of a conversation with you guys today because um, God is really just doing a mighty work and he's stirring a lot even in my own life. And we are, over the next six, seven weeks, we're going to be hitting some pretty big things that really impact our culture and our world and all that's taking place right now. Today, um, I'll go ahead and tell you we're able, I'm going to be able to preach about life. And what does God really think about life? Um, we think about suicide, we think about abortion, we think about all different types uh, of things that come into play. I can't cover it all in one week, but I'm going to try my best to give a pretty good general understanding of what the Bible says. Um, next week, it's weed and wine, um, and then the following two weeks, biblical sexuality, and then I'm preaching on money, and just the, the things that you go to bed at night going, I hope pastor preaches on this. Amen? Thank you, both of you. And um, But it is fun because... Um, I, I want to go back to about a month ago. About a month ago, I was able to come and to better preach about a biblical worldview and what a biblical worldview is. And a biblical worldview, it's important for us because that's acknowledging that God's thoughts and God's ways are higher. In fact, we're even asking you guys during this fall to memorize Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Last week we gave out magnets, all kinds of stuff. I'm sure we have more. If not, we'll get you some. Um, I saw somebody who put a magnet as an emblem on the front of their car. And if that works, that works. You know, whatever it takes. Um, and we just want you to be able to jump in and to memorize the Word of God. In fact, I'd like us to go ahead and read it together now. But I'd like you to call it out by yourself. Often I'll read along with you. I'll get you started. Let you guys run forward with it. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Um, and it's right here as the Word of God. And so we'll go ahead and have that come up. And let's, let's call this out together as his church, okay? Um, so here it is right here. Here we go. Ready? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Wonderful job. We desire as followers of Jesus to recognize that God's ways and his thoughts are greater than our own, which means we may not uh, always agree with what God is desiring, but we're willing to do that because we trust in the Lord. It goes on further, uh, I was speaking with you about a month ago, about Colossians 2.8. It says that if we're not careful, what happens, Colossians 2.8, and go ahead and know now, I am calling out so much scripture today, so if you want to be ready to write those down, also a lot of stats and different things are taking place in the world right now. So a lot of information for you to, to be able to absorb today. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says that if we're not careful, what happens is we're taken captive 
through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. And so that's what begins to unfold. Um, all of a sudden, we start to think different ways. We start to act certain ways. Um, we start to live our life based on human tradition rather than the Word of God, a biblical worldview. And we want to recognize that God's ways and thoughts are higher. And so as a response, as a result of that, we then want to have a biblical worldview. The way we defined a biblical worldview uh, a few weeks ago was we said that a biblical worldview is thinking God's thoughts about the issues of life. You should remember, you should, hopefully, if you're here, you remember this from, from just a few weeks back. A biblical worldview. So that's what we're shooting for today, yeah? A biblical worldview is thinking God's thoughts about the issues of life. We don't want to think human thoughts about the issues of life necessarily. We want to think godly thoughts because we recognize his ways are higher. His thoughts are greater. And so we want to have a biblical worldview as we walk through life together. And if we embrace God's worldview, if we trust in it, then we form, if we trust in God's word, if we trust in what he tells us to be truth, then we're able to allow our own understandings, our own philosophies, our own decisions, our, even our own preferences to be shaped by God and what his word is communicating to us. That's the goal. That's what we're wanting to be able to do. In fact, we need to, we need to have the conversation about it, and that's why I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try so hard to sit here today so I can have a conversation. It is hard. I'm the guy who you go to dinner, and I'm like, I'll just stand up at the end. You know, like, I'm always, fine, I'm weird, okay? Um, what, what I recognize so much is we need to learn to have conversations with our children, with our grandchildren, with our neighbors, with our friends. Uh, what we're learning today, and even in studies and surveys, is that Christians are more silent right now than ever before because they know that they're standing in opposition to often what the world is saying. And so as a result, instead of having conversations, they just remain silent. And we have a responsibility to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But you see that very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. This is what it says. It's right there. I'll turn to it here in the Word. And we look at it, and it very clearly says, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to give an answer or to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Right? For what that is. But it says this. It says, do it, though, with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. That's part of having the conversation. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, and you will be slandered for standing for a biblical worldview in a world that does not embrace God. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 1 Peter chapter 3, 15 through 16. And so we need to even have a biblical reason for the hope that we have, a biblical defense for it, and we need to learn to have conversations about all those things that I told you over the next five, six weeks that I'm being able to preach about. To be able to explore that together. Now, before we even do that, though, I have, I'm going to ask you, if you've never done anything for me, just do this one thing for me today, if you would. Get out your notes, and I need you to get out something to write with. 
Um, maybe you need to borrow. If you don't have anything to write with you, you can go. We've got pens in the back. Get up. Don't worry about it. We've got different places. You can find the, the Word of God as well. If you don't have a Bible, take a Bible with you. We'd love for you to have it. If you need two, take two. We don't care. All right? So as we're able to do this, I'm asking you to just, I want you to draw one scale for me today. It's not on your notes for a reason. I want you to do this. So please, even if you don't have a pen and paper, act like you do. It'll entertain me, all right? So I want you to draw a line, and I want you to have a hash mark here, and I want you to have a little hash mark here, and then a line connecting the two. That's all I want you to do. Somewhere on the bulletin, on the worship guide, on the notes, whatever you need, uh, write it on your kid's forehead, whatever you got to do. Just hash, inch tall, inch tall, boom, make a line between the two. Everybody got it? Yes? All right, this is what I want you to evaluate. As you're doing that very thing, I want you to think about, are you willing, and give me a moment to just explain this, are you willing to allow God, are you willing to, to let God change your heart or your mind and your thinking about the issues of the world? Now you're going, well, yeah, Joel, come on. Pastor, we're at church. Of course we're willing to do that. No, let's be honest. A lot of people come to a particular church because they are already in agreement on something rather than going to a church in order to be taught and to learn and to grow in their understanding of God. So are you, where are you, and this isn't for you to look at your neighbors or anything else. We're going to keep coming back to this over the next five, six, seven weeks. Um, and I'm going to invite you to look. And if, if you're at the scale over here, look at your, 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 your scale there, your line. And if you're way over to the left, that means you're basically, I already know what I believe. You can't tell me anything different. I don't care. God doesn't need to teach me anything more. I am all brilliant. Anybody here want to raise their hand on that? Please don't. Please don't. Or on the far right, if you're going, if you're looking at your page on the right-hand side, what you have is, you know what? I just have a heart that is soft, vulnerable, a mind that is open to teaching of Scripture and to the Word of God, and I just want to learn truth, even if it disagrees with my current preferences, even if it disagrees with what I've always understood to be something that I wanted to be truth before, no matter what it is. I just want God to show me more of God. Where are you on that scale? So if you would just make a mark somewhere. And my biggest prayer over these next several weeks is that God would soften our hearts and our minds as we listen to his word and that we would be shaped by it so that we can have healthy conversations. So that we can sit down together and have healthy conversations. Are you willing for God to change the way you think, even your preferences? And so, God, I come before you now, and I ask that you soften our hearts and our minds to absorb your truth and your power, your teaching, your ways, and your thoughts. God, I know that there's so many people, probably even here right now, who are a bit nervous about what may be said. May they know your comfort. Amen. So today we get to talk about life. I want to call, call out some numbers. We have done a lot of research to make sure we're as accurate as possible on what you're about to hear. 
And we're going to be talking about life today, primarily when it comes to pro-life. Um, people think about abortion and things like that, but also when it comes to some of those issues I've already mentioned in terms of suicide and just death as a whole. In 1973, there is something called Roe, right? Anybody remember this? It's the year before I was born, so 46 years ago. Since 1973, in the United States of America, there have been 61 million abortions. I'm about to give you some really fun numbers. Disturbing numbers. Since 1973, 61 million abortions. In 2017, there were 862,000 abortions in that year. In Michigan, in, 18, in 2018, in Michigan, there were 26,716 abortions, which is up from the previous year, by the way. Now, one of the struggles, we are struggling to track all the numbers as well as we used to because in the year 2000, um, there was something that came out called the morning after pill. Do you know what I'm talking about? So the morning after pill came into play, and so now it's a little, you can still track by the amount of times that is given and prescribed, etc., but now all of a sudden what you have is it's a little more difficult to know the numbers, but regardless to say there's been six, they're, they're trying to include those numbers in these surveys, and there's been 61 million abortions if you include all of those things in the United States since 1973. In fact, in 2016, um, 34% 34% of people don't consider abortion to be a moral issue. Now, things have changed a lot in the last several years, and just the last two or three years, and so I've tried my best to try to find updated numbers on that, and I could not find it exactly. I varied everywhere from 40 to 45% of people now do not consider it a moral issue. So let's go low end, because again, I kept finding differing numbers on this part, but low end would be 40% of people don't even consider it to be a moral issue anymore. Big question, and I think some of the reasoning why, you know, because we look at, okay, when does human life actually begin? I don't think that that's even the best question. I think the question that we're really struggling with is when does a human life become a human being? That's really what the world is wrestling with. And so they go, when does a human life become a human being? Because even embryologists, well, it doesn't matter if they're religious or not, by the way, everybody will tell you, as soon as the sperm fertilizes the egg, right? As soon as the sperm fertilizes the egg, what happens is already within, as soon as it happens, your hair, to color, is, your hair color is already defined, your eye color is already defined, the type of shape you're going to have, um, all these different things come into play. As soon as the sperm fertilizes the egg, the characteristics of that child are already determined, already, as soon as it happens. So again, it's not even a matter of human life. It's a matter of when human life becomes a human being. When is that? And here's the, question, here's, the, here's the thing you have to understand, is determining that is beyond the scope of science. Science has already said as soon as a sperm hits an egg, those things are already determined. Determining when that human life becomes a human being is, I think, up to God. And we're going to look at Scripture in a second and talk about that. It's a bigger issue. And you're going, well, is it really? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the development of a child. Week three. Um, 
I need, I need to go ahead and just stop. Let me say this. If you look at national numbers, this is heavy on me today, okay? Because if we look at national numbers, even if we come close to national numbers, dozens of you have had an abortion. Told the first service the same thing. Literally, I mean, literally dozens of you have had an abortion if we look at national numbers. And what I want to make sure you hear before we go any further is this. There will always be hope in Jesus. Can, can we sit in that for a moment? So I'm at, don't hear this. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says. And you may have acted, what I would say is against the Word of God. But there is always hope in the name of Jesus Christ. There is always mercy. There is always forgiveness. And there is always a future in the name of Jesus. Please hear that. Please hear that. Please hear that. But we know from the word of God what life is really about. We know that at week three, a heart begins to beat. Week three even has their own blood, which is often different than the mother's blood in terms of type. Week three. Week five, eyes, legs, hands are developing. And when you start, that's week five. Most people don't even know until week four, week five, if they're pregnant or not. Trust me, I, I've never had a child, but my wife has had several, right? And I remember, like, she'll come up. She, she, I remember the first time, oh, my goodness, um, I might have thrown up, and um, she's like, hey, I'm pregnant. I'm like, oh, I'm going to the bathroom. And so all of a sudden I go, okay, how far along? That's the first question you ask. How far along are you? Five weeks. I'm doing math. Like, I'm pretty good at numbers, and it took me about three days to figure out, okay, there's 40 weeks gestation period, 37, no, 33, 35 weeks we have to get ready. We have to change everything in our life in in 35 weeks. That was the mentality. Now, the good news is if you haven't had kids yet, about week four, you're like, oh, we're screwed anyway. (laughs) You're like, oh, we're just going to do the best we can. But by week five, think about this, by week five, the eyes, legs, hands are developing. By week six, brain waves are triggering. Week 8, every organ is already in place. And by week 12, the baby can experience pain and is sucking their thumb. You're going, why are we doing this? I'll tell you now. um, We're doing it because it's based on convenience. Because here's, here's, let me give you some passages of scripture. Psalm 22.10 says the following. It says, on you, Psalm 22.10, great passage. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. A popular passage when it comes to speaking about this is Psalm 139, 13 through 16. I don't want to read that for you. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. And it says the following. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, which means you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't that cool? 
This is wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. And it's speaking about within the womb. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It says that God knit us together in our mother's womb. God desires that we too recognize that and, and love every single child. Now, one I, want to, I want to make sure you hear this. This is not about as much about being anti-abortion. You need to know that this is about pro-life. There's a difference. We are for every life from the time it is conceived, because that's what this passage says, until the time they die. I think we've narrowed the scope too much. This is about being pro-life. This is about being for life because God is for life. God is for you, and so we want to be for you, to grow in him and to know him, to be nurtured by him, and yes, for some of us to even be forgiven by him, but there is hope in the name of Jesus. We need a love for human life because God has a love for human life. Hurting or not, But what gets in the way of us having a love of human life? If God has a, a love for human life, um, what gets in the way of that? We get in the way of that. Because we want preferences. We want convenience. In fact, uh, as we looked at all these numbers and we kept pulling from different resources, as many as we could find to try to be accurate in everything that we're saying today, um, we started to research why people have abortions and how they look at life. This is what we found out. I think it's, it is important for us to hear. 25% of people, remember 61 million, okay? That's a minimum. 25% say they abort because they're not ready to have a child. Um, what I would tell you is you are never ready to have a child. 23% um, say that they can't afford it. I would say that 100% of people cannot afford it. Um, I, I, children cost a lot of money, don't they? It's, it's really astounding. Like People are like, you better have a fat checkbook. And I tell people all the time, I don't even have a checkbook anymore. I have a change jar. Right? They just keep costing money. And go figure, the bigger they get, what do they eat more of? Food. And it just keeps going and going. But we, listen, 50% of people simply say they had an abortion because they can't afford it or they're just not ready. 19% say that they are just, they're done having kids. Maybe they're later in life. It'd be someone roughly my age. I'm, I'm 45, and uh, I've had four children with my wife, and it would be as though my wife came to me and said, hey, listen, um, I'm having a child. Um, after I removed my own self from the fetal position, um, you get the pun on that, um, I would then say, well, we have another opportunity to raise another warrior for Jesus. But many are saying, no, we don't want that. 8% say they, because they don't want to be a single mother. 7% don't think that they're mature enough. 4% are having abortions because they say it will interfere with their, their own career or their schooling. That means roughly 94%, that's the number, are having abortions 
out of, really if you summarize those, out of convenience. And I don't want to oversimplify that. And some people go, well, there are, guys, I understand when convenience has, even the word convenience has different layers of complexity, okay? But we're still making decisions based on what is healthy for us at that time. And I'm not going to get into every single topic because I don't have time for it, but some people say, well, what about um, those who have been raped? And that is well less than one half of 1%. So we're not going to go down that road, but what I will tell you is God can redeem anyone from anything at any time. That is the power and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. I need to sit back down. This is what happens. And we go, well, then... We're just trying to help people find convenience. We're trying to help people just be able to live the life that they want to live. And yet we know that it's really an industry. In 2017, Planned Parenthood with others along with them reported $3 billion in revenue. $3 billion in revenue in one year. Why are we making these decisions? And it's because as broken people, go back to biblical worldview a month ago, we look at the fall of humanity when we said, you know what, we want for ourselves. And so now we turn from God. As broken people, we naturally desire to live for the good of self rather than the good of others. We naturally desire to live according to the good of self, to the good of what we want, to the conveniences that we have. And I do it as well. We all do it, guys. So don't, don't start pointing fingers. We don't need any more pointing of fingers in this world. What we need is a pointing to Jesus, a pointing to Scripture, a pointing to the Word. And so often we want to, to desire to live according to our own good rather than the good of others. We must not disregard God when God is no longer convenient. We must not disregard God when God is no longer convenient. And guys, it's happening everywhere. Some people just go, oh, it's the United States, what, what's happening? It's all over the world. Uh, one of the resources that we found was from the Karos Journal. This is a, a journal that's put out once a month in Israel for the Jewish people. And um, this is from 2000, January of 2014. And I just want to read part of this to you, and, and I'm even going to throw some of it on the screen for you to be able to see. But in this article that we found, it says in um, Israel, and this is, again, January of 2014, Israel approved an abortion law that is incongruous with its biblical heritage. Now, any Israeli woman between ages 20 and 33 may receive a state-funded abortion for any reason. And the leader of the committee that drafted the law, Jonathan Halevate, uh, you'll be able to see it up here, explains the following. He says, we want large families in Israel. We definitely encourage birth. But when pregnancy occurs and it is undesired or inadvertent, I think we should supply the means to end the pregnancy properly. What that says is, and if you go on to read the entire article, what it says is, when it's not convenient, why would we not help them? It makes Israel one of the most liberal countries in the world in terms of abortion laws. And it is a departure from Jewish heritage. You even look, another passage, Jeremiah chapter 1, 5. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. 
Jeremiah 1.5. It goes beyond this, and it goes even to the Didache. The Didache, it's popular New Testament writings that um, many, even in the Council of Nicaea, when they were coming and they were gathering all the books together to say, okay, what is in the canon and what is in the Bible? What should be included in that? And they're making these enormous decisions. There are other books that were also written that, that were going to come in. Um, and one would be even the Epistle of Barnabas. And so even in his writings, he, he's saying this is, and this is a reflection of the position of, the, of believers 2,000 years ago. And it says things like this, you shall love your neighbor more than your own life. You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor shall you kill a newborn. And there's others, other examples of this exact type, exact same thing as we start to dive in more and more to the word of God and what form Christian and Jewish values as they continue to move forward. And so when we look at murder, this is what we're doing. When we look at murder, we are actually devaluing that what God values. We must not devalue what God values. And God values life. God values your life. God adores you and he values your life so much. He gave his son to die for you. Even when the people were just rejecting God. I think about Psalm 106, and I don't have time to walk through all of it. Um, but Psalm 106 is this passage that really is this national confession from Israel because they kept denying God over and over. It tells us that they rebelled against God in one verse, and a couple of verses later it talks about how they worshipped a metal image. It talks about how they angered God and how they served their idols. In fact, in Psalm 106, verse 37, it says that they are sacrificing their sons and daughters to other people. Sacrificing their sons and daughters to other people. And so Psalm 106 is mainly focused on the repeated failure of Israel through her history. And what took place, and it's that pattern that we see all the time, the people of God moved from faith and gratitude to disobedience and self-absorption. And so that's what we see over and over. What happens is, right, the people of God, they go, okay, we're with you, God. But in time, they start to buy into self more and more. And as they're doing that, they're stepping away from God. And now they're, they have a lack of gratitude for who God is. They don't worship God the same way, and they fall. And then God steps into the picture, and God restores, and God redeems, and God renews, and God gives hope, and God gives forgiveness. Over and over again, it happens but it tells us in Psalm 106, 36 and through 39, it talked about how they're sacrificing their sons and their daughters. They poured out innocent blood. They claim to be children of God. Here's the kicker. They claim to be children of God while acting out against God. God is for life, and so we are to be for life. We see it continually throughout Scripture. But the struggle is, once again, we, because of sin, sin separates us from God, we're living in opposition to God. And when we live in opposition to God, idols and preferences have pushed God out of his rightful place in our hearts. When we should be praying the words of Micah 6.8, Micah 6.8, a prayer just ingrained on your heart over and over where he, he says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And part of 
Loving mercy and acting justly is standing for the very things that God stands for. It goes beyond that. Proverbs 31.8 says that we're then called to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Psalm 24.11, we're called to rescue those being led away to death. And we see it over and over again. What I love so much about Psalm 106 is that it tells us, though, in Psalm 106, 43 and following, it says, many times, though, God delivered them. And I want to make sure you hear this. It says, many times God delivered them. Even in their rebellion, God delivered them. He looked at their distress, and he heard their cry. And he says, he remembered the covenant that he made with the people. He calls them to be pitied by all of those because of his abundance of steadfast love. So here is a group of people, the people of God, who are worshiping idols, who are sacrificing. Literally, they're taking their sons and their daughters and they're putting them on the altar to be shed, their blood to be poured out. And yet here comes God and he goes, you know what? I still have mercy for you. No matter what decision you've made in the past, I need you to hear that today. There is mercy for you. There is grace for you. And one of the greatest ways that Satan works is he makes you live in despair when God has promised freedom. He makes you live in regret when God has promised salvation. And so if you have made decisions in the past that are not having a biblical worldview, what I would tell you, some of you might have even hung out with some friends and said, listen, um, don't worry about it. Do what's right for you. It's not the best time for you. You didn't know you were going to be having a child. And you, you've even encouraged someone to go and to abort a child. I'm telling you now, there's grace for you. There's grace for every single person in this place. It's called the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I want to make sure that that's heard. Because what's not happening is the conversation. We need to be able to say, hey, when someone walks up and says, what do you think about this is, you know what? I believe that God's word is perfect. Hear that, by the way. This is, a lot of people will tell you that this is the inspired word of God. And it is the inspired word of God. But you need to go further than that. This is the inerrant word of God. Because if you say it's only the inspired word of God, what you do is go, well, I'll take what I want when it inspires me, and I'll get rid of what doesn't inspire me. And so then we can have the conversation with friends and say, you know what? Um, I know maybe you made some other decisions in your own life, but I believe this is what the Word of God says. But can I tell you, the Bible says a lot more too. And the Bible also speaks about grace and it speaks about freedom. It speaks about forgiveness for the sinner and we're all sinners. Isn't that good news? And so it starts to shift the way that we can have conversations with other people. Because we know that God loves his children. And you're going, well then, if the Bible speaks against things like even in Exodus chapter 20, right? We know that the sixth command, greatest commandment is what? Do not murder. Exodus chapter 20. If we know that that's what's communicating, some people will then say, well then how can he offer forgiveness? Listen, God doesn't forgive because he thinks little of sin. Please hear this. God doesn't, he doesn't forgive because he thinks little of sin. God forgives because his love is greater than sin. And you're going, well, that's just not possible. Well, you've got to also remember that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Mark 10, 27. 
and that he desires for us to have a full life. John 10.10, have life abundantly to the full at every single turn. And in order to do that, we no longer have to be held captive by our own thoughts, our own ways, our own past. But we can now live in freedom because of Jesus Christ. There is hope for everybody. There's hope for everybody. Another thing that goes along with this understanding of how much God loves life is I, I want briefly, and I, I, I just don't have time to hit it in detail, but I need you to know this. Um, in the last 50 years, in the last half century, the suicide rate among adolescents and young adults has nearly tripled. Process that. So when we claim to have as much freedom as ever before because we can live according to preferences, and what I would tell you living according to preferences is not freedom. Living according to Christ is freedom. Suicide rates have nearly tripled in those age groups. And by the way, nearly 80% of them are white males. You want to know why? Because in today's society, white men can't win. Now, that's another whole conversation. But we go home and we have failed. We go to work and we have failed. 80% almost, 79. And there's all types of things that come into play to suicidal thoughts. I have people in my family, close in my family, who have struggled with suicidal thoughts significantly, which has involved um, different institutions and everything else. I know it well. Out of respect to my father, I've told you before, he, he struggled with some of those thoughts as he was so sick before his passing. And I would cry with him and we would hug. We would call out scripture. We knew it so well. And there's all types of things that can come into play into those thoughts. And I'm here to tell you that right now. But I'm here to tell you the good news that no matter what, there is freedom and hope and love in the name of Jesus. Please hear that. Greatest reason, if you boil it all down, the greatest reason for suicide even today is despair. People don't feel that there's a way out. Know that as a church, we want to help you with the way out if you don't think that there is one. Even I think about Acts chapter chapter 16, verse 27 and following You have Paul and a Philippian jailer. You remember this? And all of a sudden, God allows Paul to to escape, and yet the jailer's going to kill himself, and he says, no, don't. And instead, he tells them about Jesus, and he goes, and the whole family comes to know the Lord. And even if you have that type of desperation in your life, know that there's more in Jesus, and it can be complicated, and it can be hard, and it can be a long road, but we, we are willing to walk the road with you. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and serves the crushed in spirit. We also know, and, and I just I want to make sure you hear this as I conclude today, and I, I know I'm just sh- sharing so much information, but as the team comes back, I want to I share a quote with you by Charles Spurgeon. Um, Charles Spurgeon says the following. He says, there is no salvation apart from the Lord. 
and he must visit us with it or we shall never obtain it. And then he says this, he says, we are too sick to visit our great physician and therefore he visited us. And you wanna know how he visited us? In the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. He stepped in, Psalm 106, for the people of Israel. He stepped in over and over again, and he stepped in for the entire world. And he said, you know what? You can't do it yourself, but I can do it for you. I I think I have two, I have so many prayers for today. One, I'm praying that you start having conversation about, hey, you can, somebody, did you know it's okay to disagree with someone? And they can say, well, you can't say that. It's a person's right. No, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you give up your rights for something greater in the word of God. But don't you understand this? Even if you have acted against the word of God, there's always hope in Jesus. There's forgiveness. And I'm so badly wanting you to experience that comfort and that warmth. I'm so badly wanting that for you. And some of you, I don't want you to be held captive to to the the human traditions and, and going, man, yeah, but I made mistakes. God is in the business of redeeming mistakes. And I want you to know that mercy and I want you to know that grace and I want it to comfort you and I want it to be a blanket on you. I remember a few days ago, all of a sudden I woke up and it was the cool of the day for the first time because we had such a warm September. And I was like, I literally, I felt the cool breeze and I go, oh, flannel shirts. I started wearing flannel. Anybody, you know, it just brings comfort to me. You're there with me, right? Especially the thin flannel, don't get me going. But all of a sudden I'm going, man, and it just brings us comfort. I'm praying that the day you know that type of comfort, he just kind of comes down and you can literally feel him. And even if you've made mistakes in the past, even if you are still after 30 years, I had somebody come to me after the first service. She goes, 30 years ago, I still struggle with it. And she just walked away in tears. There is still grace and love and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. You're held captive when you allow that mistake, that sin, to stay with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, put it at the altar and know that he can redeem. We couldn't do it ourselves, so he did it for us. God, I love you, I praise you, and I worship you. I praise you that no matter the the decisions we've made in our own life, there no longer needs to be despair. Because despair has been replaced with hope. Captivity has been replaced with freedom. And even in the midst of the hurt and the pain, you have brought comfort. May every single person in this room today, every single one of us, know forgiveness, know courage, know gentleness, know strength, and know freedom. In Christ's name, amen.
child of God, and he has chosen us. Would you worship with us? The sun sets free, oh, it's free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. The sun sets free, oh, it's free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Oh, I am who you say I am. Who the sun sets free. Oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Our prayer today is that you would encounter God, that you would see yourself through his eyes, through his perspective, that our identity is found in Christ. The Bible says that he who the Son has set free is free indeed. So we have freedom in this place today to worship. We are chosen, not forsaken. Let's worship together as we call on his name. 
I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I'm chosen. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Oh, I am who you say I am. Yes, I am who you say I am. Who the sun sets is free. Oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Amen. God, would you move in this place today? God, we are here for you. I pray that you would meet each and every one of us right where we are in life, whether this is something that we do every week or maybe this is relatively new. God, I just pray that your grace be sufficient in all things. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us the freedom to respond to who you are. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I am chosen. I am not forsaken. I am who my Father says I am. I hope you just let those words wash over you this morning. And my prayer is that we don't just sing those lyrics, but that we take them to heart because they are truths from the Word of God. Well, my name is Jackie Van Dyke, and I serve with with the women's ministry here at Chapel Point. And we are so glad that you're here today. I'm just here to welcome you. And especially if you are a first or second time guest here, we're really glad that you came. I know it can be a little intimidating to walk into a new place for the first time, but thank you for taking that step. And we want to get to know you. So if you would help us out with that, you hopefully got a worship guide when you came in. And there's this little piece that you can tear off and just give us a little information about yourself. And you can throw that in the offering bucket when it goes by, or you can take it right out these doors to the guest service area, and they'll have a little gift for you there for coming today. So you can also put a prayer request on there. And our commitment to you is that if you do that and put it in the offering bucket, we will pray for that. We take that very seriously here. You know, we're all on a journey. And as as a church, we want to come along beside you wherever you are in that journey and help you with those next steps. And maybe for you, that next step is baptism. Maybe you've never participated in believer's baptism. And maybe you have some questions about that. You're not even quite sure what it's all about. We have a class that's being offered next week at 11 o'clock right now. um, And that will just answer any questions that you have. We'll talk about what the Bible teaches about baptism. We are not saved through baptism, but it's an opportunity for us to 
publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, if that's something that you're curious about, bring your questions and come next week. There's more information about that in your worship guide and about a lot of other things. But right now, we want to continue with worship. Amen. Thank you, Jackie. You know, we come to this place in the service. This is an important time for us as we engage with God in worship. And these songs that we sing today, a lot of them are songs that remind us of the truth of who he is. They speak to his character. But these songs are also actions for us as we declare before God that, God, we are going to run with all that we are towards you and towards what you're calling us to. And so maybe you picked up a cup of coffee on your way in. I want to encourage you to set that cup of coffee down. It'll probably stay warm for the next 15 minutes. It'll be okay. If you have a phone in your hand, maybe you can turn it off. Because just for the next couple of minutes, as we engage with God of all creation, we don't want to miss what he has for us. So we want to invite you to stand as we enter into this time of worship together. You are good. Let's sing this together. And you are good, you are good, when there's nothing good in me. You are love, you are love, on display for all to see. You are light, you are light, when the darkness closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my sin. You are peace. And you are peace, and you are peace when my fear is crippling. You are true, you are true, even in my wandering. You are joy, you are joy, you're the reason that I sing. You are life, you are life, in you death has lost its sting. All right, let's sing this together. I'm running to your arms. No, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever. You are more. And you are more, you are more than my words will ever say. You are Lord, you are Lord, all creation will proclaim. You are here, you are here, in your presence I'm made whole. You are God, you are God, of all else I'm letting go. I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms, the riches of your love will always be enough, nothing compares to your embrace, light of the world forever reign, I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms, the riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever. Reign.
my heart will sing no other name Jesus Jesus my heart will sing no other name Jesus Jesus declare that my heart will sing these are actions no other name the name of Jesus 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 my heart will sing to Jesus no other name Jesus Jesus yes God no I'm running to your arms I'm running to your arms the riches of your love will always be enough nothing compares to your embrace light of the world forever reign i'm running to your arms i'm running to your arms the riches of your love will always be enough Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever reign. God, the riches of your love will always be enough for us. God, I pray that you would join us in our journey of life and remind us of how good you are. Because we know that there will be trouble in this life. You tell us that in your word. But you also tell us, God, to take heart. Because you and your power have overcome the world. It's because of your goodness to us. So I pray that you would meet us here. As we worship you, God. In spirit and in truth. You are worthy of what we bring. Amazing love that welcomes me, the kindness of mercy that bought with blood wholeheartedly my soul undeserving. God, you're so good. Sing this, church, you know it. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. God, you're so good. We give you praise, oh Lord. 
God, you're so good. For all that you are. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. I am blessed. I am called. I am healed. I am whole. I am saved in Jesus' name. Highly favored, anointed, filled with your power for the glory of Jesus' name. I am blessed, I am called, I am healed, I am whole, I am saved in Jesus' name, highly favored, anointed, filled with your power for the glory. Jesus' name. And should this life bring suffering, Lord, I will remember what Calvary has bought for me, both now and forever. God, you're so good. God, you're so God, you're so good. And God, you're so good. And God, you're so good. You're so good to me. So many reasons to sing, God. You're so good. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. I am blessed. I am called. I am healed. I am whole. I am saved in Jesus' name, highly favored, anointed, filled with your power for the glory. Jesus' name, God, you're so good. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. Father, that is the cry of our heart that we long to put you on display, to see you exalted to see you honored and glorified in this place. Because of your goodness, God, 
we can walk forward through life with joy. Joy that knows no end. Joy that is never dictated by circumstance, but only on the person of who you are. A loving and faithful God. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence in our lives, your presence here. We want to know you more and more. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. We get to continue in our worship by responding to God through giving. And if you are a guest here, we don't expect you to participate here. But for those who call Chapel Point home, this is our opportunity to give back to God and to participate in all that he's doing in this place and around the world. You know, God is at work transforming so many lives. And it is such a privilege to get to be a part of that in even a small way. You know, it doesn't matter if you, um, some of us have already given online or if you want to text in a gift or give in the offering bucket. And like Joel will talk about later, it's really not so much about the amounts or what we're giving. It's about the heart. It's about that surrender that God's looking for. When I think of giving, I love the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, that whole chapter, but I'll just read a few of those verses. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you that you are the ultimate giver. You have given us everything we have, from the breath in our lungs, uh, to this beautiful day, to our health, to pouring out your love on us through the sending of your son and offering us eternal life. You have given and given and given. And I thank you that we get to reflect your heart when we give back to you. God, I thank you that we can never outgive you. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to try to earn your favor by giving enough back to you that, that you give us complete grace and that we just get to be a part of your work. God, I pray for each one here who has a heart to give. Lord, will you pour out your blessing on them? God, we can give in many ways through our, through our time, through our abilities, through our gifts of money. Lord, I, I just thank you that you are worth it all. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
it's holding me. It is Your love is the real thing. It's a real thing. It's the air I breathe. Your love has got a hold on me. And it's holding me. It is everything. It's the real thing. Not disappointing, won't leave me wanting. It's overwhelming, Jesus, your love for me. I know I need it, I know it's worth it. The cross, it proves it, Jesus, your love Your love is the real thing. It's the real thing. It's the air I breathe. Your love has got a hold on me. And it's holding me. It is everything. Your love. It's a real thing, it's a real thing, it's the air I breathe. Your love, it's got a hold on me, and it's holding me. It is everything, it's the real thing.
is a real thing. It's a real thing. It's the air I breathe. Your love, it's got a hold on me. And it's holding me. It is everything. It's the real thing. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm Joel Wayne, one of the pastors, and still in a series called this summer series called Encounter, as you just saw on that bumper. And uh, we're going to be able to have an opportunity this morning to look at the rich young ruler. So before we do anything else today, may I please invite you to join with me in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Let's go ahead and turn there together. One of the four Gospels, you find this story in three of the four. Um, and so we're going to be able to look primarily at Matthew 19 today. Uh, I might refer to the others, but you can just stay there in Matthew and walk through some of this with me. Before I jump too far into it, though, I just want to stop. I want to start. I want to read uh, Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 22. And uh, I just want to go ahead and have, have the opportunity to read that right now in its entirety. So this is Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 and following, the word of God for us as we jump in, okay? And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus responded saying, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect... Go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He went away sad, for he had great possessions. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. Um, Last week, if you were here, you'll recall I had Pastor Nathan help me out with something. This week, I've asked Pastor Luke to come help out. Will you say good morning to Pastor Luke? Hey, guys. How are we doing? 
Uh, If you're new here, Pastor Luke is our pastor of family ministry, which really means he helps to oversee all of the ministry. All the fun. All the fun. All the fun. So birth to like 18-ish, you're saying that older people can't have fun. Go ahead. Am I right or wrong, young people in the room? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. You need to do a job (laughs) something. Okay, um... Here's Pastor Luke, and he's going to help me out with something. I hope the ministry's going well, by the way. How are the students? Man, it's been awesome. We had a great summer with our kids' programming and our student program. We had a couple, a middle school weekend where we had an intense retreat with them, just had a ton of fun, and just seeing them grow in God's Word is huge. And so we're getting geared up for this fall launch um, on September 8th. I'm just excited how God is going to continue to use these students and your kids to be catalysts in this community. If you have any questions about the student ministry, ask this guy. He doesn't do a lot with the kids because we have amazing people. That's right. Like Carolyn Orcus, Nikki Sands, Max Bolscher with the middle school, other people who are doing a fantastic job. But if you have questions, you can talk to this guy. But he's going to help me out, um, if you don't mind. And I want to do something. Um, everybody, we, had, we have medical people here in the room, I hope. Um, and... Uh, I'd like to go ahead and start speaking to you about this guy by the name of the rich young ruler. So I'm going to do so, and I'd like to, I'd like to preach this morning whilst doing a handstand. Um, now, I'm 45 years old. Don't mock me. Don't laugh at me. It's rude. Um, I'm, can we have, do you like class participation? I'm going to invite all of you to do a handstand with me. Um, I'm kidding. Okay, so here I go. Um, there's a reason for this. Don't worry. I have to gear up, man. I still feel the blood rushing to my head from an hour and a half ago. All right, here we go. So, oh my goodness, this morning I'm preaching on the rich young ruler. How are you guys doing? Are you doing well? Uh, Matthew chapter 19 is the primary. He's referred to as the rich young ruler because in Matthew, I just saw two of you take pictures. That's ridiculous. (laughs) And and seriously, that's just wrong. Um, In Matthew, he's referred to as being rich. Uh, later on in Mark, he's referred to as being young until you get the rich young ruler. Please put me down. Oh. Um, yeah, can I please not get a hand? Um, and a chair? Um, you probably don't remember anything I just said. Here's the reason I wanted to do that. I'll do anything in order for you to remember about who Jesus is, to learn about who Jesus is. What you're going to learn today is that blood rushes quickly. That's what you're going to learn today. I feel that swirling. Um, here's the thing that we're going to have to learn. I'm going to hang cut to the chase because I'm going to talk about this a lot. A lot of people make this passage. Some people give the rich young ruler a hard time. They make it all about wealth, and he's got money. He's not willing to give it up. And, yes, there's, there's some great important messages about money, but it's, it's about much more than that. i got to tell you. And here's the primary issue, and here's the struggle that this rich young ruler had, is this rich young ruler, you're going to see it very quickly. The very first question he asked, he said what? What must I, what's the next word? Do to inherit eternal life. he, He sneaks through the crowd. People are all over the place. He gets to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his struggle was he had an upside-down view of who Jesus was. He didn't clearly understand who Jesus was. And I'm hoping that by the end of the message today, we're all going to have an opportunity to evaluate our own view of who Jesus is. 
Because we learn so much from this question that he's asking this guy. Contextually speaking, we, we do know, listen, if you're, this is first century, if you were a Jew in first century, the majority of Jews then would have believed very clearly that they would have gone and had, they would have had paradise, eternal life. Um, there was a smaller group who believed that it was based on your righteousness. But then you have this other group of people called the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in any type of eternal life. And so as a result of that, it's a great life to live, right? They were just all about the here and now. Let's party it up because there's no consequence or anything, which means I really have no responsibility for anything. And so it's a good life. Let's go. And so you have different people coming and seeing Jesus from different angles. And some of us are seeing Jesus upside down from whom he really is. And we're going to learn what that means for us today because here's this guy who really just says, you know what, I just need to earn my way. Any, anybody here love to check off a list that you make. Like, I'll sit in a meeting, I'll have an agenda, and as you go through that agenda, you, you're the one who has an X by every single thing that you've already covered because it brings satisfaction knowing that you've gotten through that list. Anybody? I would say you guys are crazy, but I'm the same way. We'll be crazy together. Um, I, I, like to, I like to check it off, make an X, whatever it is. Some of you do it with grocery. Like, when I go to the grocery store, um, I'll put it on my phone now and I'll delete everything that I've already picked up because I feel better about it. When I get down to like two things, I'm like, this is amazing. Look at what I've accomplished in life. All right? In some ways, I think this guy has a little bit of that personality because um, he's wanting to make sure he's done the right thing. And so he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, there's some other, others would say, hey, you've got to look specifically at each of the, the commandments that Jesus is laying out here. Um, they do vary a little bit according to the gospel that you're reading. Uh, I don't think it's about which ones he's calling out necessarily. Um, often what would happen is if you would cite any scripture, you're really referring to all of scripture and saying this is what you should be keeping so when we're looking at this individual, why is it that he's asking this question? Here's a kicker for us. Because of this man's upside-down view of who Jesus was, not knowing and fully understanding who he was, I think you have a guy here who, this man, he wanted a teacher who would provide assurance not a Lord who desired surrender. He just wanted to know he, had, he was doing what he needed to do. He was free. He was clear. He checked it off the list. Now he could live his life with peace and contentment. He wanted a teacher, and that's what Jesus is. Hear me say, I need to unpack this phrase a, a little bit. Jesus is rabbi. He is teacher, and he does provide assurance it's the beauty of who Christ is. But he is also a king to be surrendered to. It doesn't stop there. And many times we look at who Jesus is. We have an upside down view of who he is. And we cut it short. And we stop with he's a teacher who can provide assurance. He can tell us what to check off of our list. And we need to understand he's more than that. He is a king to be surrendered to. It's really the gist of why this person, I think this young man, was struggling so much in where he was in life. 
And yes, it speaks. You can continue to read, especially in verse 23 and 24 of Matthew chapter 19 is when it goes in and speaks about it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. Um, guys, we, we can get into all of that. Jesus, though, never comes and says it's wrong to have wealth. You, you can go, let's, we can go back to the Old Testament, we can go to Abraham, we can go to other individuals who had tremendous wealth. We can also look at people like Lazarus and sisters Mary and Martha and people who had wealth there. You can even go to others also, um, such as, uh, uh, I would even go Joseph of Arimathea who gave his tomb to Jesus, um, one that had never been used before. That required wealth to be able to do that. There are others also. Um, Nicodemus was an individual who had wealth. Jesus Christ never says you can't have wealth. What he did say, though, is often it becomes a distraction. That becomes your God rather than me is the point. And so if your wealth is being used to further you and not further Jesus, then it's a problem. So that's what he's communicating here. And he's letting this individual know because of his wealth, that security of eternal life, here's the big kicker for you, to make sure that you have a proper view, that you're standing up straight when you look at Jesus. He's letting people know that security of eternal life doesn't come from possession, but from a heart surrendered to God. Fill that in, please. It's on your worship guide. That's what we must understand. That security of eternal life doesn't come from possession, but from a heart surrendered to Christ. It doesn't come because you're talented. It doesn't come because you have self-rights. It doesn't come because your family said you're saved. You can't give your salvation to anybody else. Every single person has to make a decision if they will surrender their heart to Jesus Christ. Every single person. And that heart surrendered to Christ, it is all a result of a massive heap of grace that Jesus Christ has dumped into our lives. One of the things I'm convinced of is the amount of apathy of the believer today is typically from the believer because the believer thinks that you've done something to earn what you've received from God. And what I'm here to tell you now, I want to help explain this, is you cannot earn the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. And if we're really honest, I think a lot of us are living our life and we think we've earned something for eternity. You cannot earn it. It is by grace and grace alone. And by the way, that's beautiful news. Now, it doesn't mean you don't go into action over having a heart that's fully surrendered. It doesn't mean you don't go into action over that and you want to live that out. It means that you want to do that. But you need to know it's the power of God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy that allows us to be in a relationship with him. Security of eternal life doesn't come from possession, but from a heart surrendered to Jesus Christ. It means if you really have a heart surrendered, it means you have a biblical perspective. And this is the difficulty of life, is are you looking at life through a biblical lens because you've surrendered your heart to him? That's why I say a lot of people are, they're looking at Jesus upside down. You, you, you have your own perspective and you want Jesus to justify what you already believe because that way you don't have to change. 
That's a different perspective. But if you have a heart that's surrendered to Christ, a biblical, biblical perspective allows you to even see self clearly. That's one of the things that you find. A heart surrendered means that you have a biblical perspective of self, that you recognize that you're a sinner. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We recognize that from Romans, from the words of Paul. It means you're not looking at Jesus to tell you, man, you're already perfect the way you are. It means that we know that we need to respond to him. We know that every time God speaks, it what? Demands a response. You're responding to him. And if you recognize who you are in Christ, you want to respond appropriately. So a heart surrendered means you have a biblical perspective on self. It also means you have a biblical perspective on Christ. This is straight Matthew 19. This is what this guy struggled with. I think he had the wrong view of self. Hey, look at what I've already accomplished. I'm good to go. If he can just give me a couple of other things that I can check off my list, I'll have assurance of that. I can live however I want. He needed a biblical perspective on self. He also needed a biblical perspective on Christ, on Jesus, a Messiah, that he was more than just a teacher to provide assurance, but he's a king to be surrendered to. That's a, surrender's the big question. One of the things we often use with our language here at Chapel Point is that transformation is not a one-time event. It's a lifelong process. Anybody heard that before? Just say yes, it'll make me feel good. Thank you. It's more than a one-time event. It's a continual process. And so when you recognize that you have a heart surrendered to him, it means you're constantly seeing a greater view, a greater picture of Christ. And the greater picture of Christ you have, the more that you're transformed. It's a constant process. If you, you need to evaluate seriously, are you still growing in your relationship to Christ? And if the answer is no, and on some level, it's because you've lost a proper view of who he is. Maybe difficulty came to your life, and so all of a sudden you're upset, and you have a relationship with God, that you're, and you're, you're upset with God. You can't believe God will let this happen. Just remember this. God owes you nothing more than what he's already done in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. So if you think that God has come to, come to serve you and to make sure that everything you want takes place and that you have no difficulty, what I'm telling you now, rich young ruler, you, you have a wrong view, an upside view of who Christ is. You need to get off your hands and look fully straight up at who Jesus is. You've lost a clear view. So we need to have a biblical perspective of self, of Christ. We need to have a biblical perspective of our own sin. If you acknowledge Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and you think he is here to come and do whatever you want, you have a, an unbiblical view of who Christ is. Because if you have a heart that is surrendered to him, you now are saying, God, you're what matters more than anything else for the rest of my life, and I want to surrender to you. It doesn't matter what's happening in life. I want to surrender to you. When things are going great, I want to surrender to you. When things are going poorly, I want to surrender to you. So a heart surrendered means that you have a biblical perspective on self, on Christ, on sin. And for this young man, he needed to understand that if he had a biblical perspective on Christ, on what it is to surrender to him, he would have a more clear view on possession. And his struggle with this, here, here is the real issue for this guy with possession. Again, it's not wrong to have wealth. God has blessed this church with resources. And trust me, I feel the responsibility to, to spend those resources well along with all the leadership every single day. 
There's a lot of things that we don't do here just because of the perception of what that would be, and we go, we can't do it. But you have the same responsibility as an individual to say, God has blessed me with these resources, with these possessions, even with this amount of time, with these gifts, with these talents. And now, if you're a follower of Jesus, someone who has surrendered your heart to Christ, you now have to ask yourself, are you using those things to push toward Jesus? Why? Because absolute surrender to Jesus is a gift. It's not a burden. It's a beautiful gift. I'll put it like this. This is what often, and I know that the majority of people in here would claim to know Jesus Christ. You're at church on a Sunday morning when it is a beautiful summer day. You, the majority of you, I know maybe not all of you, and if you, if you haven't surrendered fully to Jesus Christ, I would so encourage you to do that. We would love, we've got a lot of people who would love to talk to you about that. But the struggle that we have are for believers who think that they've surrendered everything to Christ and they haven't. Why? Because we have an upside-down view of Jesus. And we've said, you know what, it's a one-time event. I've surrendered to him. And now some of you think you even earn it because you showed up at church on a nice summer day. You can't earn it. Some of you think you've earned it because you gave a check and you said, here, I'm giving this back to God. But you can't earn it. We live in a society that's more and more concerned with self. That's why it blows me away. Even for the believer today, the percentage of giving is less today than it was in the Great Depression. Everybody talks about how great the economy is and it's growing and it's doing this. The percentage that the believer gives today is less in the percentage than in the Great Depression. Think about this. And that's just for those of us who said we've surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, that's not a money thing to me as much as it is a surrender thing to me. And that means we're probably taking more of our time for self than we are giving it back to Jesus. We're saying, well, this is my me time and this is what I want. Or these are my talents and my resources. And we will justify self more than fight for Jesus. Because if you've surrendered your heart to Jesus, you recognize you no longer have to fight for self. That's already been taken care of through the blood of Jesus Christ. So now you get to surrender to Jesus and offer him everything in your life. And that just gets me fired up. To say, well, yeah, that's, that's having a proper view of what it is to surrender to Jesus. This is one way that I think about it. Um, I, I don't really wear jewelry. Sometimes a watch. Right now I have on a wedding band. That's it. This thing basically never comes off. Um, so if you don't see it one Sunday, it's because I have lost it again. Um, I'm trying to get better with that. And so I look at that. I'm going to use, just for the sake of this illustration, um, young ladies, ladies in the, uh, in the worship center right now, I'm going to use you as the example. Um, because the way we put accessories on is important. Like, right, how many, how many times do you see somebody go, you know what, this afternoon I'm going to head to Lake Michigan. It's a beautiful 86-degree day. The water temp is a balmy 56. So I'm going to go out to Lake Michigan. Like, how does that happen, for real? God's sense of humor. Um, and so all of a sudden you've got your bathing suit on and you're throwing on a tank top and some flip-flops, and then you throw on a really nice strand of pearls. Anybody do this? No. 
The only person who wears a strand of pearls to the beach is a four-year-old little girl, and you know that they're fake, and they had a temper tantrum before they left the house, and so the mom and the dad said, wear whatever you want. I've personally never been there with any of my kids, but I, just, I can imagine that happens. And so here they come, and they're per- right? Imagine this. You get a 28-year-old, they've got their second job, They've been in it for five years. All of a sudden, um, somebody comes and says, we want you to apply for this new job. Dream, of, dream job you say for you. You can't believe it's a dream job. And so you wake up an hour earlier than no, normal, and you keep changing clothes at least five different times, and you keep changing all the accessories because you want everything to be perfect, and so you've got it all laid out just right. Or even better, right, even better, when you wake up, we had a... Uh, a good friend of ours, Alan Casting, got married here yesterday. You don't think that they woke up yesterday morning and the young lady was like, hey, you know what? I need to make sure I look good today. And that they'd already spent time picking out all the accessories and making sure that it matches. So some of us are going to play sporting good, uh, a sporting event. And so then what do you do with all the accessories? You take them off. Here's what we, if you want to have a proper view of who Jesus is, here's what you must understand. Jesus Christ is not an accessory to be added. He is a king to be served. And too many of us are walking through life and we're, put, we're waking up and according to what we have going on that day, we may or may not put him on. Today's all about me, I got this, here I go. You're, right? You, do you see what I'm saying? We, we treat Jesus as an accessory that we may or may not put on. I think that's part of the problem with the rich young ruler as he said, hey, can't you just help me do this and then I'll be good and then I can move on my own way and live my own life the way that I want to live my life? And Jesus is going, that means you don't have a heart that's surrendered to me because a heart surrendered to me means that you are going to be a radical, devoted follower of Jesus in everything that you do. Woo-hoo! Anybody want to add a Yahoo horrible, but much better than the first service. But that's an easy thing to do. Um, So I look at that and I go, man, that's what it looks like. And too many of us are treating Jesus as an accessory that we throw on according to what we're doing that day. We have an upside down view of who he is. I want to read for you as we continue just to hash this out, Matthew chapter 19, um, he's talking in verse, uh, in verse 24, he's talking about what it is for the rich man to go, uh, it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, uh, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man into the eternal life. And he's speaking about this and he's addressing it. Letting them know, man, it's really about pos- whose possession is it? Right? The, the real issue is idolatry. And he's letting them know this. He's letting, he's letting them know the real issue here is p- about what you're willing to give up. Idolatry, guys, here's an easy way to think about it. Idolatry is, is anything that has greater priority in your life than God. That's the simplest way I can state it. I've preached on idolatry so many times. And this guy had something in his life. For him, it was possession. It was wealth. For you, it might be time. For you, it might be your talent. And you're not willing to use that for God, but you want to use it for the advancement, uh, advancing self. Idolatry is anything in your life that has greater priority than God. Idolatry is something that's sitting on the throne of your heart other than Jesus. 
And if you're really honest, you'll know what that is. Another thing that we say here at Chapel Point is that mature leaders invite what? Accountability. Mature leaders invite accountability. And so some of you might need to sit down with someone and say, hey, can I, can I ask you this? Do you see something sitting on the throne of my heart other than Jesus? Because for the rich young ruler, it was his possession. It tells us that Jesus Christ said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And that the man went away and he was what? What was he? Sad, sorrowful. And so I want to invite you this week to take the opportunity to go and, and to speak with a loved one and say, hey, do you see something in my life that has greater priority than Jesus? And just ask the question. I, one of my favorite parts of my trip, if, if you don't know, my, this church was so gracious to me and my wife. I talked about it a week ago if you were here. And we got to spend a couple weeks, just the two of us, and we haven't had that in 15 years that long. Like, it was like, yes. Right? It's really good when you've been married for, what, 18, 19 years, something like that. Um, and I, I can do math. I could figure it out. Um, and you, you get to spend time together, and you come back more excited about marriage than you have ever been. Isn't that good? Right? It's so nice. One of my favorite things on that, though, was when we're in Oxford, and, and we played the thank you game. Um, and do you ever play the thank you game, anybody? You don't even know what I'm talking about. You're like, What's the, I say thank you. What are you talking about? I can say it in three languages. What I'm talking about is where you let your spouse look at you and say, hey, tell me a couple ways I can be a better spouse. And your only response can be thank you. You can't justify it. You can't say, well, yeah, but you don't know what was going on that day. And so that's a really fun game to play. I was a little hurt because she was like, everything? I'm like, oh. No, I'm just kidding. But we got to say, hey, here's something I would like to see you do different. Like whenever you say this, it hits me wrong. And so I don't justify it. I simply say, man, she's, it's not coming out right. So whether I mean it that way or not, it's still hurting my wife. And so I look at it and I just say, thank you. Let's go get coffee together, right? Can I invite you to do something similar to that when it comes to looking at a friend and saying, do you see anything in my life that is more important than Jesus? That was the struggle with the rich young man. All this is happening. Here's the disciples. This is what they say. It tells us. It says, the disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished. And they say, well, then who can be saved? And he says, listen, with man this is impossible, but with God, nothing. All things, all things are possible. The guy can't earn it, you can't earn it, but with God, I got this. He continues on. Peter says, I've left everything. And Jesus turns to him and says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, you who have surrendered fully to me, this is what he's communicating, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. What he's saying is everybody who has the right priority and they have placed me on the throne of their heart. Everybody who has truly surrendered to me. Everyone will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Security of eternal life doesn't come from possession. It comes from a heart fully surrendered to Jesus. So here's my question. Have you truly surrendered to Jesus? And if you're a believer, which the majority of you are, I get that. What right now is God asking you to surrender? Maybe your bitterness, maybe your anger, maybe some time, maybe some possession, whatever it is. What, what is God asking for you to surrender so you can once again establish that he is the most important thing to you in your life? Is there anything in your life more important than Jesus? You see, Jesus Christ has come that we may have life and have it to the full. It's one of the things I'd like you to do this week. Memorize some scripture. That's, that's John 10.10. 10. It tells, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But only a person who's truly surrendered their heart to Jesus can understand that, can fathom that, can process that. And here's a, the, the last thing I'd like to ask you to do is this. This week... Will you surrender something to Jesus? Maybe it's family time and you said, you know what, guys, we're going to do this together, but instead we're going to do this. We're going to go serve with each other. We have, listen, friends, Chapel Point has a lot of things going for it. One of the things we have going for it, we got plenty of weeds to be pulled. we got plenty of work to be done. we got plenty of neighbors to share with. Maybe that's one of the ways that you surrender this week. You go, guys, we're going to do this instead. We're going to make cookies, not for us. We're going to make cookies for all of our neighbors. And then when we give them the cookies, we're going to let them know, hey, we just want to give you some cookies and say a prayer for you. Can we pray for you? And you say a prayer over them that God blesses their home. Can I invite you to evaluate? To be a mature enough believer to ask yourself, are you fully surrendered to him? Maybe you see him from the wrong way. How do you need to surrender to Jesus? What is it in your life that is more important than Jesus Christ? And I get it, guys. Here's the thing. This is what we do. And we, we just, oh, my goodness. We justify self. And instead of justifying self, we need to fight for Jesus. We will naturally step into what we desire. That means we have to fight to step in to what Jesus desires. And we give our time and we give our energy and we give our resources to so many things that are temporary. And Jesus is calling out, don't you know I want to use you for the eternal? And this guy goes away sad because he had something other than Christ sitting on his heart. And that zeal and that fervor that he had for possession wasn't nearly... 
It wasn't anything that he would allow Christ to have possession of. He wouldn't do it. So he goes away and he's sad because something other, something other, what is your other, was sitting on his heart where Christ should be sitting. Maybe that's what I pray for more than anything is That's another way of saying it, is that we would have a greater desire to see Jesus advance than see self advance. What do you need to surrender to Jesus? God, I come before you. And I know that it's so easy to get turned upside down and our thinking and, and what we think that you owe us and what you deserve to do for us. It's so easy to get mixed up and, and to start looking at what self is first rather than what Christ is and who you are. God, give us clarity. Give us proper biblical perspective to be able to stand upright and to recognize that you have truly, you've taken a dump truck of grace, you backed it up and dumped it on top of us. God, may we recognize that. The beauty of what it is to claim the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. May we know what it is to surrender all things to you. Every single one of us, we're probably holding on to something that you desire to have lesser value so that you may have greater value. May we be mature enough and courageous enough to identify that, to call that out, to allow you to take hold of it. God, we surrender to you. We have hearts that are fully surrendered. Sit in our heart. In Christ's name, amen. May we stand together. May we sing to him. And may we declare his goodness. In all things.
Sing it, church. My God is over all. I believe, yes, I have seen it. My God is over all. I believe it. I have seen it. My God is over all. You are the one above it all. I stand in awe. You're the God over all I know. No higher name, no greater throne. You stand alone. You're the God over all I know. You are the one above it all. I stand in awe. You're the God over all I know. No higher name, no greater throne. You stand alone. You're the God over all I know. I believe it, I receive it, my God is over all. I believe it, I receive it, my God is over all. I believe it, I receive it, my God is over all. Amen. How many of you believe that he is Lord of all? What do you need to surrender this week? Chances are, when challenged with that very thing, what can you surrender to give more energy, more focus to the kingdom of God? Something popped in your head right in that moment. That's Holy Spirit speaking and working. 
Our job is to obey, to follow through. We want to, here at Chapel Point, come alongside of you in your faith journey. And one of the ways we do that is through prayer. And we have a prayer room right off to your left as you go straight out those doors. We would be honored to be able to pray with you, maybe to pray through something that God is moving and working in your life today. But it's been an honor to worship with you. We pray that you have an awesome week. God bless you as you go. Thank you. I believe it, I have seen it, my God is over all. I believe it, I have seen it, my God is over all. You are the one above it all. I stand in all, you're the God over all I know. No higher name, no greater throne. You stand alone, you're the God over all I know. You are the one above it all. I stand in all, you're the God over all I know. No higher name, no greater throne. You stand alone, you're the God over all I know. I believe it, I receive it, my God is over all. I believe it, I receive it, my God is over all. I believe it, I receive it, my God is over all. That microphone out there, I think.
to other brothers and sisters, that's where God can really teach you and grow you and stretch you. And so come, make sure you take that opportunity to do that. Also, today is a unique day. It's a special day for us because in both services, uh, we've invited a bunch of teachers. We have a lot of amazing teachers and administrators in this church right now. Um, And We've invited others to come, and we're going to have an opportunity later in the service just to invite you guys to come, and we want to pray for you guys. We want to better speak with you and really just let you know that no matter how hard it is, right, God is there for you and that we're also there for you. We don't care where you go to church. We will help you. We will love on you. We will pray for you. We'll help you clean a room. We'll help you do whatever we can um, because we think what you're doing is that important. Um, especially for followers of Jesus Christ. And maybe not always in words, but in every single way, we get to show children the love of God. Um, we have hundreds and hundreds of little kids here, and that's what, that's what it's about, is teaching them about Jesus Christ. Um, so we're excited to do that later on in the service, um, after some more worship and the preaching of the word. But um, one more thing, I'm inviting you to pray. Uh, on September the 8th, right, it's just a few weeks away, On September the 8th, we're starting a series called Because It Matters. Um, This is going to be a really important, it's a 12-week series that we're looking at. um, And I want to be able to preach through so many different things that really are impacting the church today and also the world today. Uh, We're going to be beginning with what the church is needing to be even in 2019. The Word of God is very clear about that. We're going to be talking about a couple of uh, spiritual disciplines and then I'm, I'm diving in to talking about who the church is to be and what, the, what does God say about biblical sexuality and the LGBT community? What does, what does God say about, let's talk about, so we're going to talk about marijuana. We've got a week called Weed and Wine. Um, and we're just going to invite everybody to say it three times real fast. Ready, set, go. Uh, horrible class participation. Um, and so we're going to have that opportunity. We're going to be talking about uh, pro-life or pro-choice. Just what does God say about life? What does he say about that? And we want to preach on these things. I'm excited to preach on anything that is in the word of God. All right, you got to know that about me. And so we're going to have that opportunity as well. So will you, will you pray with us as a church about that series that God puts the right people in this place and that he even speaks through our mouths as pastors to convey not us, but to convey him. Will you do that for us, yes? Will you promise to pray about that? I think it's going to be a defining moment for this church um, as we have that opportunity. In fact, as we continue to worship right now, I'd like to invite you to watch this promo video of that series, Because It Matters. I think of that series that's coming up and how closely that even ties into us having the opportunity today to pray over school staff and um, just the many issues that this world faces. And if you are a Christian, you are walking in the light of God. And sometimes even in walking in the strength of God, um, our humanness causes feelings of anxiety, uh, maybe feelings of doubt or worry, um, sometimes even of fear. 
And sometimes that's directly related to the situations that we walk into. And we want to be praying over those people today that um, have that role in classrooms. But, you know, I would like us to kind of shift our perspective. And instead of thinking about being afraid of the darkness that awaits, whether you're a teacher or not, we all have some type of darkness that um, maybe comes into our life, comes across our path. What if we shifted and said, you know what, the darkness is going to tremble at the light because I have the power of God in me. The darkness should never, never overcome the light. And so as we begin to worship this morning, we're going to sing a song that speaks to that, that your name, Jesus, is a light that the shadows can't deny. So would you stand with us as we worship and give God the right place in the light? Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Oh. 
Your name, his life, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, you told us in your word that we would have trouble in this earth. But you also told us to take heart because you, God, have already overcome the world. And we thank you for how you equip us, God, how you position us to step into the hard that we walk through. All for the sake of bringing light to darkness. So I pray today that you would shine brightly in this place that we would know you, that we would know the truth of your word, the faithfulness of who you are. And whatever storm may be just swirling around us in this moment, God, may we give it to you knowing that you will bring peace, that you will break the storm in your time for your glory. We bring worship to your name, Father. May you be praised by your people today. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, one of the greatest ways, if you're walking through difficulty, if you're walking through hardship, if you're walking through anything that uh, you think is suffering, uh, I think one of the greatest ways that we see in Scripture that people walk out of that is through worship of the King, is through praising Him. So I'm excited to continue to do that here in just a second. Um, God does continue to work here. In fact, I, it's interesting. They were telling me in the back before the service, uh, just since June, um, we, we don't really have a way of tracking everybody who comes to church here. The only, way, the only people we can actually track are the ones who have little kids, all right? Um, and uh, because of safety measures that we have, the only, so, only you know, certain people can go back and be in that area, et cetera. We want to make sure your kids are always safe. Uh, so those are the only ones that we can really track. But just since June, just this summer, when everybody's in their cottage, right, uh, we've had 46 new families representing roughly 200 new people just this summer here who have visited the church. Um, and we're inviting you to pray for them, <laughs> right? If you can't tell, we love prayer here. Uh, we believe God can take care of everything and can heal the hurts. We believe God is still a God of miracles. Amen. Amen. And so we're inviting for you, uh, you to pray for those families, but also to join with us in ministering to them and to other families who are going to be joining the Chapel Point family as we strive to grow the kingdom of God. Um, we're going to have an opportunity right now to give back. 
If you're visiting with us, we're asking you not to give back. This, are, this is for people who are active here in the life of Chapel Point. This, they consider this their church home, and we love it. We love to be able to give back because we believe here that everything is God's that we have. We're just stewards of it, so as a result of that, um, we're inviting them just to go ahead and take part. This part of our worship, we love being able to do it together. We love being able to, to give back to missionaries and to agencies throughout the world and all that God is doing even here in this place. So I would like to invite those ushers to go ahead and come forward. But before they do that, I'd like to pray again. And I want to pray part of Psalm 16, an absolutely wonderful passage, Psalm 16. And so if you would, go ahead and let's pray together now. Would you bow with me? God, you tell us that in Psalm 16 that you will preserve us for we can take refuge in you. We call out because you are our Lord and we know that there is no good apart from you. May we truly be the excellent ones who are striving to sit in your delight. May we also search out for all instruction from your truth and from your word. It tells us in Psalm 16, verse 7, it says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. You say that I have set the Lord always before me. May, may we, God, always set you before us. May we strive to know you more deeply, to know you more intimately. I pray that right now you would jump into our hearts just as I prayed with the worship team before the service. God, I pray that today you drip from the rafters of this place into our hearts and our minds that you would just flow out of us in the words that we speak and the lives that we live. God, whether we are the teachers, whether we are the administrators, whether we are the business people, whether we are the stay-at-home moms, whether we are the young children, maybe we are the college student, it does not matter. God, I know that you are wanting to use each one of us to proclaim the goodness of your son, Jesus Christ. May we give back to you freely, knowing that it's yours to begin with. What an honor to be a part of your movement. What a joy it is to be a part of who you are and what you have ordained. And so we come before you now, knowing of your goodness. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that everybody, anyone who places faith in you can know what it is to be in a relationship with you. We know that we're, we're fallen. We're sinful. We, we strive for self often more than we strive to know you. And so we ask for forgiveness. And we're grateful that your grace is so abundant. Your grace is so abundant. Because we know that you conquered death. And that you are alive and well. Amen. Let's give back to God.
that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at his feet we bow. The one who wore our sin and shame now robed in majesty, the radiance of perfect love now shines for all to see. Your name. Your name, your name is victory. Your praise will rise. To Christ our King, your name, your name is victory. Your praise will rise to Christ our King. The fear that held us now gives way to him who is our peace. His final breath upon the cross is now alive in me. Sing your name. Your name your, is victory. His victory, your praise will rise to Christ our King. Your name, your name is victory. We give you praise. Our praise will rise to Christ our King. To allow Holy Spirit to lead. And by your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me.
we give you praise. The tomb where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the grave. Here we go. Our God has robbed the grave. Oh, your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise. To Christ our King, your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. By your Spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. By your Spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. By your Spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me in your name. I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. Jesus, would you bring new life into each and every one of us today? Through your spirit, God, we will rise from the depths of despair, from the pits of destruction. God, we will rise above with your name, with your strength. Thank you, God, for victory. We worship and we celebrate you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated.
Good morning, I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point. I was 12 years old when I encountered Jesus Christ in a personal way as my Savior at a camp ministry. But it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I really came to understand the implications of His authority over me as my King, as my Lord, as my Shepherd. And I, I wonder if that's sometimes true of you as well. If I were to ask you the question today, who has ultimate authority in your life, what would you say? Imagine you have a throne sitting in the middle of your soul, and on that throne someone is sitting this morning. It may be self, it may be somebody who's greatly influenced you or intimidated you, it may be the voice of culture, it may be somebody from your past whose their voice in your head just continues to have control over you. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at a man who was transformed by the authority of Jesus Christ, and his name is Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, and they're going to put the text up on the screen to uh, help as well. So just um, look at this very short but powerful narrative, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, that is Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher, your rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners." As we first meet Matthew, you have to understand a little bit about who was sitting on the throne of his heart. And Matthew's life up to this point had, had been such that he was his own ultimate authority. Uh, his name is actually, he's given two different names in the New Testament. Here in Matthew, he's called Matthew. And then in Mark and in Luke, the same man is called Levi. Tells us a little bit about him. Levi probably is a reference to the tribe he came from, the Levitical tribe, the priestly tribe. And Matthew, Matthew is a name that literally means gift of God, but it was also the name of a high priest who was the patriarch of the Maccabees. And the Maccabees were, were a group that led a revolution against Rome. Uh, his parents had uh, perhaps named him Levi Matthew in hopes that he would become a godly man. Matthew had a good understanding of the Old Testament. Matter of fact, the book that bears his name here, there's 99 references to the Old Testament in Matthew, more than Mark, Luke, and John combined. Think about that. Matthew has 99 references to the Old Testament, more than the other Gospels combined. And yet Matthew at some point decided to walk away from his legacy, his heritage, and his faith and put self on the authority. You say, how do you know that? Because when we encounter Matthew, he is a tax collector. Now, that's, folks, that's more than working for the IRS. That's like a combination of working for the IRS and a terrorist organization. Or working for the IRS and the mafia. It's a, it's a little bit like that. Because you have to understand, 
um, this, this, uh, this taxation that he was involved in was to gather money for the occupation force of the Roman Empire, uh, the despised Roman Empire. If you look at a map here, you'll see where his tax collect, collector booth was. It was right between, right by Capernaum, right on the Lake of Galilee, and uh, it was on a major trade route that went from the, the uh, Euphrates area and Damascus all the way down to Egypt. And as we're going to understand in a minute, he had a very lucrative, very lucrative uh, financial benefit from having his tax booth there. That's where he was. He was also right on the, the edge of the two different Herods, um, their controlling regions. So kind of interesting. You need to know there were two kinds of tax collectors at this time. The first group was called the Gabbai, and the Gabbai, they, they kind of collected normal taxes, the poll tax and, and property tax and income tax, and that was all preset by the Roman Empire. But there was another group of tax collectors called the Mokes, and the Mokes, they had taxed on imports and exports, anything that moved by sea or by land, and anything going over a bridge, they would tax. They would tax by the axle, they would tax by the animal. And, and so um, they had great Mokes. Mokes, a great Mokes would have been um, Zacchaeus. And he was kind of an official over other little Mokes like Matthew. And Matthew was sitting at his tax table collecting tax. And because he was the face of the taxation, he was greatly despised by the Jews. You need to understand that. Hated and despised. The Roman Empire said you can collect 15% of tax. They actually bought a franchise to get tax, like somebody gets a franchise from McDonald's or, or something like that. They had a franchise. He had a franchise to be able to collect tax, and he had the authority of the Roman soldiers to enforce. But they could collect more, and it was a corrupt system. They could collect 20% or 25%, and just they'd get their cut on top of that. You can understand why people despised him and, and hated him. You know, it's interesting, the, the tax collectors um, were, were, were just hated because of that. If you look at the, the reality, um, Matthew was uh, despised by the Jews, and was, he faced rejection from his own people. He's working for the Roman go government, the despised occupation force. He's, um, he's someone who was considered as dishonest, a traitor, unprincipled, a thief, an extortioner, and um, he was just hated by the people. He was, he was regarded as a traitorous and despicable. And for this reason, um, he was handling coins that had pagan images on it. And so he was considered also as a thief. The, the, um, the Mishnah placed them in that same category as a thief. The sages disqualified them from serving as witnesses in the rabbinical court or in the Sanhedrin. Religiously, he was considered an outcast and would not be welcomed into the synagogue or in the temple because he would be considered the worst of possible sinners. And so for Matthew, Matthew had made up his mind that money, self, and the Roman government was his authority. Again, I want to ask you a question. What's your ultimate authority today? What voice do you respond to? Who's sitting on the throne of the, the, the throne that's in your soul today, who's ultimately in control. For Matthew, it was the wrong voice, the wrong person sitting on that. 
But as you look at this passage, Matthew encounters Jesus and his authority. So as he's sitting there at his tax booth, Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. I find it interesting that Jesus came to where he was. And friends, Jesus comes to where you are, wherever you are today. Jesus comes to us, and he challenges us, and he, he confronts us. If anything other than him, anyone other than him is sitting on the throne of our hearts. He came to where Matthew was, maybe to pay his taxes, maybe because this was a divine encounter. But we know that Jesus came to him, and as he came to him, he simply spoke two words. Follow me. And amazing, Matthew gets up, and according to Luke, he leaves it all behind, and he follows Jesus. I mean, you talk about authority. He left behind his, his corrupt business. He left behind his tax table. He left it all behind. Through the authority of Jesus speaking to him, Jesus says, follow me, and he gets up and he follows. Now, that doesn't surprise me when I read the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew speaks much to the authority of Jesus Christ. Matthew's theme, or one of his major themes, is that Jesus is the Messiah King. And, and Matthew begins telling the genealogy of Jesus and tracing it to Abraham, the patriarch, and David, the king. In chapter 2 of Matthew, the wise men come and say, where is he that is born king, authority? John the Baptist shows up and says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has an encounter with the tempter, Satan, and has authority over Satan. Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Joel gave us a Sermon on the Amount just a little while ago. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in that passage, listen, you have heard that it is said by them, but I say to you, and he encounters all of the, the false religion of the Pharisees, and he challenges them. Look with me just for a moment at the last verses of Matthew 7 as Jesus closes out that sermon. And it says, when he finished these sayings, verse 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were amazed at the authority of Jesus Unlike the scribes who just quoted one another and, and passed rabbis, Jesus spoke on his own authority, and they were amazed at the authority of Jesus. As you look at chapters 8 and 9, the context in which Matthew's call comes, you can see Jesus' authority in a lot of different ways. Beginning of chapter 8, he cleanses a leper. Just an, a miracle that happens. And, and beginning at verse 5, he uh, heals a centurion's servant at great distance. And the centurion says, I'm a man under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. And, and Jesus said, I haven't found such great faith any place in Israel. This man understands authority, and he put his faith in my authority. Jesus heals a number of different people from verses 14 to 17. And then he, in, in verse 23 down to verse 27, Jesus speaks and he calms a storm. You talk about authority. He just spoke the word and a storm stopped and the water was placid. He heals two demoniac men beginning at verse 28 to the end of the chapter. And so when Jesus spoke, the darkness had to run. We sang about that earlier. Jesus has authority. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed. 
And he also then said, by his own authority, your sins are forgiven you. He has authority to heal. He has authority to forgive. And it's right after that that Matthew is called. In every one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story of Matthew's call happens right after that healing of the, of the paralytic and Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Jesus um, heals a woman and heals, raises to, from uh, death a girl. A little later in chapter 9, he heals two blind men. He heals a man unable to speak. So in all of this, all of these miracles are showing and demonstrating Jesus' authority. Later in Matthew's gospel, the authority of Jesus is seen in his resurrection from the dead. And he ends the gospel of Matthew with these words, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Friends, whether you recognize it or not, whether you submit to it or not, whether you believe it or not, Jesus has ultimate authority. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the only one who has the divine right to sit on the throne of your heart. And Matthew encountered Jesus and his life was transformed. And friends, for some of you, the battles that you're facing, the struggles that you're having have to do with one thing. Who is sitting on the throne of your heart and your soul today? If it is not Jesus Christ, you will continue to be conflicted because you were created. And if you're a Christian, you've been redeemed so that Jesus would be King of kings and Lord of lords in your life. I want you to notice what happens here. Matthew demonstrated that he surrendered to Jesus' authority. He got up and he followed Jesus. He leaves it all behind. And, and then Christ transforms him. Uh, Matthew is listed as one of the 12 disciples. Repeatedly in Matthew and Mark and Luke and, and even in the book of Acts uh, on the day of Pentecost and in the gathering that happened before the prayer meeting, he's listed and sometimes he's listed as Matthew the tax collector. Matthew became a follower of Jesus that, that transformed his life, that encounter with Jesus. And then he invites Jesus to a meal at his home. In verse 10, Jesus is reclining at the table in his house. Now, if you came to our house for lunch, we'd sit you at a table. But when you, when you came for lunch in, a, um, in a, a Jewish home, you would actually recline usually on one elbow and there would be just uh, people all around, and they would serve from the middle. And so Jesus and his disciples come to Matthew's house. And look, look what else. The Pharisees say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It tells me that Matthew, because of the transformed power of Jesus' authority, he not only invited Jesus and the disciples, but he invited every other tax collector he knew and every other sinner he knew, and that's pretty well everybody he knew. So he invites everybody to come, and to come and to have a meal with him. Interestingly, the Gospel of Luke uh, talks about a lot of table talks of Jesus where he's at a meal with somebody, and, and that's, this is one of the table talks. Luke tells us this was a great feast, meaning that Jesus, saw a re uh, Jesus encountered all of these other sinful people with a great banquet. I mean, it was a huge spread, and, and Matthew invites all these people in, showing that his life had been changed. Matthew tells us that there were other disreputable uh, sinners that were here. Matthew is a changed man. It's reflected in the gospel that bears his name. It's reflected in this feast that happened. He encountered the authority of Jesus and would be forever the, the different man. His life would now be defined 
by Jesus. The authority of his life would now be Jesus. The transformation of his life would be Jesus. And because of that, get this, Matthew wanted to share Jesus with everybody he knew. He said, I want you to meet the one who changed my life. I want you to also encounter Jesus. And friends, if you don't care about other people around you, then you have to ask the question, have you encountered the authority of Jesus in a life-changing way? Because if you have, you have to tell others. You have to. And Matthew did that. He invited everybody, everybody. Now I want you to notice how Jesus responds to the Pharisees with authority. There's a question that the um, Pharisees ask. When he's reclining at this table, the Pharisees saw this. And they said to his disciples, they don't say it directly to Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The New Living Translation on this says, why does he eat with such scum? Why does he eat with such scum? They despise these sinners. They despise them. Friends, listen, if you look down on people who don't yet know Christ, then you're, you're acting more like a Pharisee than like Jesus. The disciples are asked this question, but before they can respond, Jesus responds. And first of all, he gives this doctor metaphor. He said, um, those who are well don't need a physician, but those that are sick. So Jesus responds with a metaphor. You don't go to a doctor unless you're sick. And Jesus was saying, I am come to be the great physician to send sick souls. You don't go to a physician unless you're sick. And he said, it's, I have not come to call those who claim to be righteous. Those who are well don't need a physician. Then Jesus, after using that metaphor, gives a quote from Hosea 6.6. 6. And I love this. The Pharisees, by the way, considered themselves to be Bible scholars. They knew the Old Testament. And Jesus says to them, go and learn what it means. A little in your face. His response to them is, you need to go back home and read your Bible. You need to go check out Hosea 6.6, 6, which says what? I desire mercy, compassion, and not sacrifice. He's basically saying to the Pharisees, you don't know your Bible very well. You don't know the character of God very well. You're not really under God's authority, because if you would, you would know what Hosea 6.6 6 says, and you would know that being under God's authority means you care about other people. Look what it said next. For I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. So he gives a doctor metaphor, he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, and then he gives a statement of his mission. Jesus is saying, I came to call sinners, not the, in a sense, self-righteous. I came to call broken people, the people that were at Matthew's table, tax collectors and other sinners. I came for them. I came so that they could encounter my authority and be changed by my gospel and be transformed. That's why I came. That's my mission. Luke's gospel in the 15th chapter, the Pharisees are again criticizing Jesus. And this time they're saying, he is the friend of sinners. Jesus wore that as a badge of honor. And he tells three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And basically he's saying, you're exactly right on the friend of sinners. And in heaven there's a celebration whenever a sinner repents. Like a sheep that's found, a coin that's found, and a son that returns. He tells that. 
And later in Luke, he tells a story between a publican, not a Republican, a publican and a Pharisee. And the two men go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, considering himself self-righteous, stands up in the presence of God and he says, God, I have, I have obeyed you. I have, uh, I have given my tithes. I am not like this. I'm not like this publican. I'm not like this sinner. And, and the publican smote on his breast, showing grief over his sin. And he said, God, be merciful. Literally, God, be propitiated. God, be atoned for my sin, the sinner. That was a very short prayer. And Jesus says, that man went down to his house justified, and the other, he did not. So Jesus is very much owning that I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friend, if you're here under a burden of guilt and of sin, I want you to know Jesus Christ is the one who can forgive you and cleanse you. Jesus Christ is able to do that. And when you, when you believe that his death on the cross as your substitute was enough to pay the price for all your sin, and you trust in him as your savior, he then becomes your Lord, your shepherd, your king. And Matthew got that. Matthew got that. You see, Jesus' mission is to transform sinners into followers who reach others. Jesus' mission is to transform sinners into followers who then reach others. So here's Matthew. He's a sinner. He becomes a follower, and immediately he invites others to encounter Jesus. Friends, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. So I have three questions for you this morning. Have you encountered Jesus and his transforming authority? We sang about his transforming authority. I want to ask you a question. Have you encountered Jesus and his transforming authority? Friend, if you are still sitting on the throne of your own heart, your own soul, that God has something so much more for you. He has something so much better for you. When you settle the issue of who's sitting on the throne of your soul, you've settled the most important issue after your salvation in Jesus Christ. Have you settled that issue in your life? Friends, I can tell you, that in my own Christian experience, my greatest challenges always have to do with that singular issue. Who's sitting on the throne of my soul? And if it's not Jesus, if it's self or something or someone else, it will never work out right. Because I was created and redeemed that he would be my ultimate authority. As a follower of Christ, is your life defined by surrender to Christ? If you are a follower of Jesus... Is your life defined more than anything else by surrender to him? Uh, sometimes we, um, we treat our relationship with God as if he's kind of in this one cubicle of our life. We call it our religion cubicle. And we've got our work cubicle, and we've got our family cubicle, and we've got our money cubicle, and we've got our hobby cubicle, and we've got our political cubicle, and we've got all these different cubicles in our life. And we try to treat God as if he fits in one of those cubicles. I want to tell you something about Jesus. He blows apart all the cubicles because you can't put him in a cubicle. Jesus Christ has to be in the center of everything sitting on the throne because that's just who he is. That's who he is. And friend, if you just have this little God space in your life where you plug it in on Sunday morning or maybe just once a day, Jesus Christ has to be Lord of all, King of all. He has ultimate authority. And are you reaching others 
who need Christ's transformation. Uh, where you work, where you live, where you go out to eat and where you pump your gas, where you work out, where you encounter others. My friends, are you intentional like Matthew in reaching out to others? Because Matthew had, as a sinner, had encountered Jesus and settled the issue of his authority, and now he was representing Christ to others. That's what you and I are called to do. Do you know what would happen in West Michigan if everyone who names the name of Christ in the Tens Chapel Point took on that mission in a serious way to begin to pray for people that really need Jesus around you? Began to build intentional relationships rather than avoid like Pharisees did? Began to get to know people and get to know their pain, their hurt, their needs? Began to share our story of transformation and began to share Christ's story of the gospel with them? I want to tell you, West Michigan will be transformed. Matthew got it right. He encountered Jesus and his authority in a way that his life was transformed. And he realized this news is too good to keep to myself. I can't keep this to myself. I've got to share it with other people. Who will you share that good news with this week? Who's sitting on the throne of your heart? What are the areas of your life that are not surrendered to Jesus Christ? And who are you sharing with? This week, you'll have that opportunity if you're alert to it. Matthew is a great example of a man who encountered Jesus, and by the authority of Jesus, his life was changed. And that's why the authority of Jesus floods the book that bears his name. Let's bow together and pray. I want to give you just a moment, just in the quietness of this moment, to just pray. And get honest with God about Who's sitting on the throne of your soul right now? Is it self? Is it the voice of culture? Is it the voice of someone else? Is it a voice out of your past? Is it money? Is it career? And I want to just invite you to say, God, I want to dethrone anything in my life that doesn't represent Jesus Christ. Because he alone should have that ultimate authority. And God may be speaking to your heart this morning about something that in your life right now that's causing great pain and heartache to you, and, and you need to surrender that to him. The thing that's making you anxious, that thing that is just a, a bondage of sin, that struggle in your life, he's calling you to surrender that to him. And who is there in your life, on your cul-de-sac or street, in the cubicle next to where you work or in the desk where you're going to be going to school this year. The waiter or waitress that's going to wait on your table. The people you always see working out. Who is there, like Matthew, you need to care for and pray for and reach out to? Father, thank you for the transformation of Matthew's life all because he encountered the authority of Jesus and his life was forever changed. May we too encounter his authority. May we too surrender. May we too invite others to the table that they too can know Jesus. In whose name we pray.
Would you stand as we cry out to Jesus through our worship? Jesus Christ. And so we cry out your name. El Shaddai. Jesus Christ. Crowned in prayer. 
Jesus Christ. God, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And what we'd like to do right now is um, we're going to have some friends come and stand uh, with a card. um, And we'd like to invite um, all of the teachers, administrators, um, anybody who's teaching and uplifting the kids. You might be doing it with homeschool or anything else. We don't care. We want to pray for you. Uh, we want to encourage you. Uh, we love prayer here at Chapel Point, and we want to ask you to come forward. We're not going to ask you to speak or do a dance or anything else, but we do. We're going to all just lift up hands where we stand over you. We'd just like you to come up here, and we want to pray for you. We believe in the power of prayer. Our God is alive and well, yes? And as you come forward, if you would just grab a card, and we want you to write your name on it, because then we're going to give you some crazy cool gifts. If you walk out the door to the right, there's a place called Connections Room. And then what we're going to use your name for is we're going to assign people to pray for you as you start a school year and as you have that opportunity. So right now, let's just go ahead, um, and all the teachers, administrators, anybody, can you guys go ahead and come forward? Um, That'd be great. You can fill out that card. Uh, Just write a name. You'll take it to the room to the right that I mentioned, and then we're going to assign people to pray for you, and we've got some cool gifts for you as well. And uh, we want to have that opportunity um, to be able to do that very thing and to encourage you and to let you know that you're being prayed for um, so come on up. Don't be bashful. Um, and come up to the front, if you will. Yeah, come on all the, the way stay up. Stay by the stage so we can That's why we you. took out a row or two here. Come right on up here. 
Um, the last one is the only one who has to speak to everybody. Um, the, uh, there you Conkle, well done. Kevin Conkle, ladies and gentlemen, that's how he rolls. You can tell he's a cross-country coach. The, uh, so we just want to be able to take this opportunity uh, to pray with you guys. Um, in fact, if you would, can you guys at first look at me? I want to read some scripture for you and for you to listen to from Titus chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And this is what it says. It says, show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Uh, We live in an interesting world, don't we? Um, May you recognize that for some... You're the Jesus that they see. Um, I think, Tom, you could agree with that, right? Um, Tom's a superintendent there in Jenison, and I know he's trying to tell people the same message. Um, You're the only Jesus that some will see or hear. Thank you for reflecting Jesus Christ. And I know some of the kids and some of the parents may not like it, even if you don't use his name, and I would say just keep showing his love. And you got a whole bunch of people who will support you. Isn't that right? For whatever reason, we literally have more kids than a lot of the elementary schools in our church. Like right now, go back there. I did. And I have a twitch. Um, They have 18 two-year-olds in one room. Um, They have 270 babies today. Not really, but that's what it felt like. I was like, oh, my goodness. And it's we get to pour into them, and that's what you guys are doing every day. So if you would look at these amazing people out there, and would you stand with me, and let's raise a hand over these friends of ours as we pray for them. God, may you use their words to convey Jesus Christ and how they care for children, and how they speak to them, and interact with them, and teach them. May you use their actions to be a model of what it is to reflect the power, the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy of Jesus Christ. God, give them a stamina and an energy. Come day one, week one, month three, It does not matter. Give them a strength to wake up every day and to remember they get to be used by God. Lord, I'm certain that some days they forget, I know I do, the value of what we get to do, the importance of it. May they not forget the importance of what they are doing. And may they see at times the fruits of their labor as they see kids asking questions that have to do with you, as they see kids who are striving to be more representative of the Almighty rather than self. And may they be reminded that regardless of where they go to church, they have a church here. Regardless, even if they don't go to church, they have a family here who will stand with them and support them. God, may we know the joy of what it is to live in Christian community. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray for every single administrator 
as they pour into their teachers and as they push them forward and as they better equip them to do their job. I pray for every single teacher, for every single teacher's assistant. I pray for every homeschool family. I pray for every single individual who's pouring into the lives of these kids. God, we need to see a generation of children proclaiming Jesus. We need to see a generation of kids, and it needs to start with us and how we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to see that, and so we cry out to you, just as we just sang before. We cry out that you do a mighty work. God, saturate the schools in this place. Soften hearts to hear, ears to be receptive, and ready our mouths to proclaim. God, I thank you for these friends and all that they do for you, Lord. Amen. They're going to have an opportunity to go back to that room in a second, but let's sing that chorus again even now. Guys, thank you so much for your ministry. Thank you so much for your work. Can we give them a hand, please? Again, they're going to, don't forget, guys, we got some crazy cool stuff for you guys as you step out to the right after the service, but we want to conclude with this chorus. Because as much as we applaud them for what they're doing, we have greater appreciation, even greater appreciation for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and we cry out to him even now. And we will cry out your name. El Shaddai, God of grace, Lord most high. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, we rely on your grace. We rely on your Amen. It's been an honor to worship with you this morning. Have a great week as you go. God bless. You are dismissed.
into the fullness of his love. 